Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Why are there people staring at us? Um, I don't see any people there, Adam. Well, it's just the crack then. <laughs> One day we are going to get in trouble for something that you say on this podcast. Yeah, well. <laughs> day hasn't come. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Uh, coming to you half live from the Pure Speculation Festival in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. This is the Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. We are your uh, half live hosts. I say half live not because we are 50% dead, but because there are people actually attending our live recording of the show today. And then you are very likely listening to the show at some point in the future not live. So there's just a great deal of temporal. Disturbance. Why don't you just say recorded live? <laughs> because that would be easy. And that's not how we roll. Nope. That voice you just heard was that of uh, an author by the name of David Gerald. He is uh, one of the guests of honor here at Pure Spec, and we're very pleased to have him on the show. Uh, and, and there's an entire audience watching him put things into his coffee right now. <laughs> this is the kind of interaction you don't normally get. So thanks for being on the show, David. Thank you. What is that floating in my cotton humor mic? Oh, <laughs> let's hope it's cream or sugar. <laughs> as long as it's edible. So David uh, is a science fiction writer uh, and author and, uh, and has also written for television. And if I'm not mistaken, he's written for one of your favorite shows ever. That's true. And so we're going to try and not just talk about <laughs> Star Trek today. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Which apparently is a thing that David is in favor of. There you go. Let's uh, so let's let's start out just talking about you first of all, so that uh, people who might not be completely familiar with you get an opportunity to uh, know who you are and, and kind of what you're about. Okay. So, uh, what got you started in the field of authoring? What uh, what made you put pen to paper? They kept giving me money for it, <laughs> and I thought, well, that was easy, so I kept doing it. That's a pretty good reason to uh, to write. Yes. And it left me with lots of time to go to the beach, <laughs> do other things, hang out, drink beer. <laughs> I'm um. going to become a writer. That's going to be my thing now. <laughs> drink beer, you say? Go to the beach? Mm-hmm. Why science fiction, David? Why, why not, uh, say, mystery or romance? Um, because science fiction, you can say things and do things and go places that you can't do in any other literature. Uh, science fiction, if I want to go to Mars, or if I want to go to a planet that nobody else knows, I want to make something up. Uh, If I want to speculate about the future, uh, if I want to accuse people of terrible habits that are otherwise impossible, um, I can take all kinds of literary revenge. Um, It's uh, it's actually, it's a literature of possibility. You get to think about things that um, you couldn't think about any other way. You get to uh, go any place, any time, anywhere in the universe and see what's there. At least you do it in your head. And so there's a, uh, there's a freedom there because then you can write about things and write about things that aren't, uh, that you couldn't say any other way. 
Um, it's, it's, for instance, Star Trek is a good example, as we could do stories about racism on Star Trek with the guy with the half-white, half-black face. We do ecology story with these little furry creatures that got out of control. We could do stories about uh, uh, the insanity of war without having to be specific which war we were talking about. We could do all kinds of stories in a science fiction environment that hammer home a point without somebody saying, I don't want you writing about me. <laughs> uh, one of the best examples is uh, Theodore Sturgeon was very, very angry at a, uh, an American senator named Joseph McCarthy. And so he, he took that anger and turned it into a story called Mr. Costello Hero, which uh, is a personal favorite of mine. I don't consider it a great story, but the passion in it is so beautiful, it's overwhelming. And uh, I actually have written a sequel to that story uh, with the permission of the Sturgeon estate. Right on. Do you feel that um, people are more receptive to those kinds of stories when they're a step removed from them, when it, it doesn't seem like it's writing about them or the situation that they're in? I think it sticks in your head like, like peanut butter to the roof of your mind, that you can't get that story out of your head. Ray Bradbury wrote a story called The Pedestrian, which is based on a true incident. He went walking in Beverly Hills. Nobody goes walking in Beverly Hills. The cops nearly arrested him for walking at night in Beverly Hills. And he wrote this stunning story, which is really about the conformity of a society that has uh, it created itself as a, a police state, that there are certain behaviors that you are not allowed to do. And, uh, and the police pulled him, what are you doing? Walking. Why are you walking? In Los Angeles, nobody walks except to the car. And um, it, it's a stunning story. It sticks in your head. And the same way uh, Orwell's 1984 sticks in your head as a metaphor for a police state. It sticks in your head as a uh, very simple like reminder, like an icon of something that you can point to and say, yeah, it's just like that, and, and people get it. So uh, science fiction allows you to go there to say, here, this is the behavior I'm talking about. And people who are guilty of that behavior can even look at it and see, not that they'll recognize themselves, but uh, you can make the point cleanly. I have a story I'm working on, it's about a race of creatures or a species of creatures called screech weasels. It is not about the creatures. It is about people who behave like screech weasels <laughs> online. <clears throat> of which there are many. N really? I thought I had met the only one, but it's, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> there was the screech weasel, the orangutan, the unayapper, the, anyway. <clears throat> now you're sort of in the midst of, of writing a series, The uh, the War Against Chator. Mm -hmm. um, and so Scott and I were talking earlier about, you know, what kind of um, emotional slash mind space investment it takes to work your way through a series like that. Um, you know, what, what's the Obsessive process like Obsessive compulsive insanity, I would say. Okay, like, yeah. okay, so there's proof You there. have to be too stubborn and too stupid to quit when you realize, oh God, there's years and years of this ahead of me. But you also have to have, seriously, a certain amount of enthusiasm. Whoa, there's still stuff to discover. There's still places to go I haven't explored. 
there are still emotional situations that I want to reveal. And uh, so it's kind of like, in a sense, it's kind of like going to Disneyland or Disney World and realizing, oh, we haven't gone to that part of the park yet and gone on those rides. Only for a writer, it's much more intense, much more in-depth, and, and much more thorough. Instead of just zipping through in three minutes and, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that, you get into, uh, this is what this feels like, and this is why it hurts, and this is who who is going to be permanently damaged by this, and this is why the hero will never be the same after this. And you actually have to get inside and live each moment. And that's far more intense and far more, uh, God, I hate the word impactful. It's far more visceral. It's far more visceral. And for, I mean, the readers get it very intensely, but I don't think anybody gets it as the writer who has to, you know, you're right there in the middle of the experience. You get, as an actor, you live it, and you're looking for the exact sentence, the exact phrase that will evoke that feeling for the reader. And so you're, you know, and if you're fighting with a paragraph, it's like, what's that feeling, and how do I find the words? And most of writing is sitting and staring at a screen saying, no, that's not it either. Until And you do that. Sometimes I, I have had experiences of staring at the screen for... 10, 20 minutes because two words are juxtaposed and it's like, which one conveys the exact meaning best? I don't do that a lot, but I've had that experience of this is a critical thing to say and I have to say it the clearest way possible. Do you, how, how do you go about um, planning a series like that? I mean, you, you know. You don't. You, you grow into it. Okay. It, it was only going to be one book. <laughs> and then I realized, well, you know, there's enough here for a trilogy. And then, oh, my God, I can see seven <laughs> books before I'm done. There's just, it just grows on you. Um, to plan a seven-book series, you could do it. You could outline it. But for me, a great deal of the fun of writing anything is discovering what's there as I'm writing. So I usually know where I'm going when I start a story. Sometimes I don't. And I say, all right, let me see where the character wants to go and how this resolves. And that way I get to be surprised too. That's awesome. Do you uh, get any pressure from fans of the series who are <laughs> impatient for you to write more? You can't see it, but he uh, kind of rolled his eyes just there. <laughs> yeah. uh, I rolled my eyes so far I could see my own brain, okay? <laughs> um. I've had people say that I, I, one letter I got, it was appalling. I had I adopted the most wonderful little boy in 1992. I just love that kid. He's 30 now. Um, I adopted this little boy and pretty much put my writing, and uh, not say on the back burner, but it was not the most important thing in my life for approximately 22 years. And I got a letter from somebody, how dare you, Adopt a little boy when you have an obligation to finish this series for your fans. Yeah, that was my reaction. I said, look, um, I want to write about real life. I can't write about real life unless I live it. And there are times when I do kind of take a sabbatical from writing. Sometimes I'll drive cross-country or I'll take a vacation or uh, I worked for five years with a company that did human uh, personal effectiveness trainings. And uh, partly because what the trainers were fans of my books, and they said, come, come get involved with us and see what inputs you can give us 
and and partly because it's like I want to learn more about how this works and 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 I will get greater insights into how people act and react. And and it worked because some of the things I'm writing now are very interesting in the character relationships. But what I'm seeing in the way characters interact. But um, uh, some of the fans act as a... Neil Gaiman said it to a fan, the fans uh, uh, who were complaining about George R.R. R. Martin being slow. And he said, George R.R. R. Martin is not your bitch. And, and that's how I feel. It's like, and I have said this to uh, the audience more than once. I don't write for you. I write for me. You pay for the privilege of looking over my shoulder. And when I feel like finishing, when I'm ready to finish the fifth book, which is pretty damn close to being finished, I just have 30,000, 50,000 words more to do out of a 300,000-word book. Um, you know, when it's done, it's done. And some people are saying, well, you get it right and I'll wait. And other people are, well, I think he's just this and I think he's run out of energy and I think he's bored with it and I think he gave up and I don't think it'll ever be finished. And, you know, and there are people who you cannot slap the stupid out of because it's stupid <laughs> all the way down. So <laughs> I, I'm just, my attitude is it's my book series and I'll write it the way I want to, when I want to, the way I feel like it to, because I, it's, it's my piece for me. So you I have, think that's a good attitude. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, so do I. And you have it sounds like you have no trouble ignoring the we'll call them people on the internet who may criticize the books you've produced or the books you haven't produced. All right, you want to insult my writing? I don't care. <laughs> you insult me personally, you've crossed a boundary. Mm -hmm. You insult my kid, you're going to get a visit in the middle of the night from me <laughs> and my cousins in the Longshoremen's New Jersey Longshoremen's <laughs> Union, Cheech and Guido, and we're going to explain to you there are certain things you don't. But um, uh, uh, I take it this way, and this is it's it's a hard lesson to learn. I, yeah, I wish I'd known this one as you know, like twelve. Is if you say something about me or about my books, you're usually telling me more about yourself than me. <laughs> You are pretty, 99% of what people say is a projection of how they see the world. So I've had people say stuff, that it's like, you know, it's like, you're a blue frog. But I know I'm not a blue frog. Now, if somebody comes up and says, well, you were arrogant, I'll take that out and I'll look at it and say, yeah, where, why did he perceive that? Or why did she say that? You know, did I, what did I do that, that may have come off that way? But 99%, and sometimes I'll say, no, that woman is arrogant and can't see it in herself. It's, what is it? We dislike in, our, uh, in others the most, the most of what we dislike in others is what we dislike in ourselves. So when people project that onto uh, onto me, I, I've, some of the courses and trainings and work I've done, the internal work, has been about recognizing what's useful feedback and what's other people projecting onto. It's a skill that takes about 50 years of practice. But I'd, wa I'd wager that, or I would hope that that sort of behavior is the exception rather than the rule for most me. of it. Yeah. Most, most people, most of my online friends and colleagues and acquaintances are really cool people who, you know, they, they give me insights. They say, here's what I got out of your book. And I'll say, wow, you know, I didn't realize at the time I wrote that, but yeah, I, that subtext is there. I didn't realize, I was so focused on this thing over here, but you're right. I did. Somebody noticed something. There's a throwaway line in some piece about why you shouldn't commit suicide. And I had not really paid any attention. It was just the right line in the place. And she said, that was the whole story for me. You 
changed my life with one line, and here's why. And she did a whole long essay about where she went with it, and I was just staggered by it, just stunned by the fact that one line in one story can change someone's life because it hits them the right way at the right time. And uh, when you realize you're, that your writing can have that much impact on people, um, sometimes it's, it's oh, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Is that one of the things that keeps you going? No. <laughs> no. Then to my next question, what is one of the things that keeps you going? <laughs> coffee. Yeah, coffee, chocolate. Um, the hope that, you know, tomorrow will bring a new redhead, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, what keeps me going a great deal is curiosity, sense of wonder. I want to know what's over the hill, what's on the next page, what, you know, what's on the other side of the mountain. I want to know what's next. And um, uh, part of writing is, okay, I've made up a situation. Now, what's next? What happens? How do people deal with it? How do people react to it? Who does it hurt? And when I start thinking about if I were in that situation or if I were this kind of a person in that situation, what would happen next? And, and I mean, just the curiosity of asking that question, what's next, keeps me going. Each year at Christmas, we write out our wish lists. But for some, their wish is just to have dirty dishes. You might think it's funny, but true, it's been said. When you have dirty dishes, it means you've been fed. It takes someone so thoughtful and kind to be clear. Yes, it's you who can help make it Christmas for a family this year. All through the city, we all can relate. It wouldn't be Christmas without food on our plate. Help make dirty dishes a tradition for everyone. Donate to the Christmas Bureau today. ChristmasBureau.ca find, to, to transition a, a little bit, uh, that it's more challenging to write um, prose in, in a novel form, or is it more challenging to screenwrite, of which you also have I done a great deal? I actually prefer prose because then I don't have to deal with idiots. <laughs> what do you mean by that exactly? Um, all right. Uh, a, a movie or a TV show or even a play, and I've written all, are uh, their team efforts. There, there's a community that comes together to, to make it happen. So it's not just actors. There's a costumer. There's prop people. There's lighting. There's makeup. Um, everything you see or do, there's the set decorations, the set dressing. Everything you see has to be created or taken out of storage or whatever. So it becomes a team effort. Now, if you have a great team like we did on the original Star Trek series, which I will use as, a, I mean, they spoiled me for everybody else because it was such a great team, where everybody's aligned on let's do the very best Star Trek possible and what would things be like in the 23rd century and what's right for our starship and what, what clothes will people wear and, and how will they react to this and what will they see and what will this look like. Um, when you have a great team, then you listen to everybody on the team and you have a... You, you have this kind of alignment of purpose, and things happen that are greater than the sum of the parts. 
sorry about that. Then sometimes you're on a team where you have some producer who doesn't think in terms of story, doesn't think in terms of how this is going to fit in with that. And he sits there and says, I want a waterfall. It doesn't really fit in this whole, I want a waterfall. I know you want a waterfall, but that doesn't work for I can save you $25,000 and, and an effect that isn't going to work on the budget we do have by leaving the, I want a waterfall. He's like, oh my God, give me a break. And um, so... When you have someone who understands it's a team effort, when you have your t a team that is com committed to being a team effort, you'd produce good television or a good movie or a good player, whatever. When you have people's egos involved and the I want, then it starts to turn into a nightmare. Um, and the, the biggest example of that uh, is some of the books that have revealed what went on during the first year or two of Star Trek Next Generation, which was all ego and no commitment to let's do the best Star Trek. It was, this is what I want. Well, this is what I want. And mostly it was, I want a bigger paycheck. So it was not a good working situation. Now, on, on Next Generation, did you work beyond work with them beyond the first two years? I created Next Generation for Gene Roddenberry. His mind was gone, and he said, tell me what you see, David. And I, I realized people are going to latch onto that, I, quote, I created, and they're going to go bug fuck with it. The truth is, I did the heavy lifting. I wrote the Bible for Gene. Gene said, David, please write the Bible. So I'd say, okay, Gene, tell me what you want me to write. And he says, well, you tell me. So I'd go in every day, and I'd say, okay, our captain has to be an older, more thoughtful guy, and he doesn't beam down. Our first officer is the head of the mission team. This gives us two heroes and gives us a greater, you know, for the ensemble and the audience. And Gene would say, okay, that's good. Go write that. And I'd come back and write it, and he'd say, okay, who else do we have on our crew? And by the time we finished, and I kept waiting for Gene to say, here's what I'd like to see, David, and he never did. Um, and I found out later that this was Gene's pattern, is he would bring people on and have them do a piece of the work here and someone else would do a piece of the work there, or somebody else would do a large piece, and then he'd get rid of them and take the credit. And he had been doing that for uh, 20, 30 years on just about everything he did. Um, Dorothy Fontana told me some horror stories about the original Trek. And, and you know, it was very disheartening for me because I admired Gene, I respected him, but um, he had feet of clay, and so I had this all the way up to his armpits. But he gave us Star Trek. You know, as much as I might criticize his behavior as a producer, I have to at the same time be grateful that he gave us this amazing vision. And I don't say Star Trek was great science fiction. It was quaint. But it was so far ahead of what anybody else was attempting to do and had such a broad vision of let's get out and explore the galaxy and let's be the best human beings we can be and let's tell stories that wake people up and let's be optimistic about the future we can build. I give him so much credit for that. It almost mitigates what a colossal doofus he was as an executive. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> What was in this coffee? <laughs> <laughs> I talked about crack earlier. And uh, <clears throat> no, I mean, that's really interesting. And, and one of the things that we, we were talking about before the panel was the way that, you know, Star Trek gets a lot of credit for tackling social issues, but um, it never really seemed to go far enough. 
You know, I mean, you had the first uh, the first uh, black crewman on on the original Enterprise. You had the first interracial kiss on the series, and that sort of seemed to be the end of it. Actually, there were moments. The first interracial kiss was actually in the episode where. Uh, what are little girls made of when Christine Chapel beams down to meet Roger Corby? She kisses uh, 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 Nichelle uh, O'Hara, gives her a, a, an affectionate kiss on the cheek uh, to reassure her that she's, you know, because she's going to see her fiance. So there's your first interracial kiss in something like the third or fourth episode. And it was a lesbian kiss, if you want to go that far. <laughs> so they did, they did break quite a bit of ground. Yeah, yeah. And, but actually the first really groundbreaking moment wasn't just that you had Uhura on the bridge. And by the way, you know, even though Nichelle you would complain, all I ever get to do is open the hailing frequencies, you want to notice that if Lieutenant Uhura said, Captain, Everybody on the bridge turned around and stopped and listened to what Lieutenant Ohora had to say every time. That's how important she was. Um, but in the first episode, bar broadcast the man trap where the salt vampire turns in, it pretends to be, creates a mental image of this handsome black crew member. That's the first time we saw black people having sexuality on American television. Uh, always before it was, you know, the token Negro, you know, to show, see, we, we know there are black people. They get to stand there as an extra. No, this was the first time not just having Ohora in the show, but also that she was attracted to this black crew member uh, who was actually the salt vampire. But the sexuality inherent in the moment is profound. You go back and you look at that episode and you were, and it's, that moment still works today, but you look at it in, in 1966, and I remember that night that was aired, and I went, whoa. Because that was, you know, it was an acknowledgement of who Lieutenant Tahura would find attractive. It was very, very profound moment in, you know, television in those days was so white bread you could put mayonnaise on it. <laughs> you have a question? <laughs> uh, yeah, what about modern science fiction? Um, whether it's television or books, do you think they're they're tackling the no? Okay. <laughs> why aren't Why don't you think they're tackling the right issues or the issues of the day? Well, that's a very complicated question. Whatever answer I give you is going to be insufficient. But I'll get. I, I think one of the problems is is way back and and give you some history. Way back in the. 40s and the 50s, writers for television movies were, writers for television, there was no model for television, so they looked to books, plays, movies, uh, newspapers, they looked to, there were, and, and most of the models for television writing came out of radio drama in the 40s. In the 40s, you would tune into the radio and there'd be the, the radio dramas. Hitchcock it was a radio drama. Um, uh, I Love Lucy was based on My Favorite Wife. There were other, I Married Joan. There were, and in fact, a lot of those scripts from those radio dramas, Jack Benny, uh, were lifted whole and turned into TV episodes, which is one of the reasons there's a writer's guild because writers like to get paid for the reuse of their work. And so there was a union formed. Um, but by the t and, and by the time we got to the 60s, we were, we were still inventing the television format. In the 60s, we were inventing the hour-long format. We had no model for it, and there weren't a lot of writers who could do it, uh, which was my lucky day because I somehow did it enough 
well enough that I could get paid for it. Um, by the 70s and 80s, we had people coming out of film school, and they'd grown up with television in the 50s and the 60s and even the 70s, so they were imitating what they'd seen. In the 90s, they're imitating what they've seen. In 2000, they're imitating what they've seen. 2010, they're imitating what they've seen. So now, television is being written by people who are imitating the television that was written by the people who were imitating the television that was written by the etc. And so you go in and, and you say, I have a science fiction series. This was in the 70s and 80s. Oh, no, science fiction's too expensive because we can't do the special effects. They still say that today, and it's stupid because even an episode of, let's say, Ugly Betty is going to push the budget at $2 million because if she walks out onto the street, it's a special effect. There's a green screen, and they have to create the effect of New York City. Gotham, every time they show you Gotham, that's a special effect. Every time they go out onto the street, you, uh, if you're a production person and you look at the scene, they say, uh-huh, so they only built that part of the set, and the rest is green screen, CGI, or whatever. And so... The whole idea that special effects are too expensive, any show, you don't even know any show anymore, even shows that take place in a small town where you go out on the back lot, there are going to be special effects. You're just not aware of it anymore. Um, so they would used to use budget. They still use budget as an excuse, whereas actually it would be cheap to do Star Trek now because you build your sets and you amortize the cost of your sets over multiple episodes. You, you do your space ship models and you get you can shoot the it it's hobbyists are doing this you go online i mean the guys doing new voyages their biggest problem is they have so many people submitting here's my shots of the enterprise orbiting a planet it's like and 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 so if guys are doing it on their laptops like you've got there um that's not a stop anymore so, but what we've got it comes back to the writing is people think science fiction is oh let's have a detective who talks to dead people. Uh, let's have a detective who um, uh, can see five seconds into the past. Let's have a, you know, whatever. And they think that's science fiction, and it's not. It's just the, the detective with a quirk. Mm -hmm. And real science fiction is, it either takes place in the future, like Almost Human, which was be, a damn good show. Um, and it has a specific set of issues that it will deal with and limits where, you know, we're not going to do time travel because that turns into fantasy and we're not going to do telepathy because that is it. We're going to focus on the mechanics over here and the issues that the people deal with. Or uh, it, there's a, they, the producers keep it limited to what they want to focus on. And uh, But what you see from the guys who don't really know science fiction, they say, well, it's got spaceships and ray guns and we can have sword fights Excuse me, if you've got a ray gun, why do you need a sword? I don't care if you call it a lightsaber. It doesn't make <laughs> sense. And they came up with this in, in, in one of those episodes of, of Star Wars where Obi-Wan uh, shoots a gun and says, what a stupid weapon. No, it's not a stupid weapon. It's a lot more effective than a lightsaber. Um, it's, and, and so I don't consider the Star Wars universe science fiction. It's a lot of fun, but it's not science fiction. It's this, it's kind of like your Saturday afternoon matinee that you would go to in the 40s. No, nobody here knows this. We're all dead by that. But you'd go to the matinee, and there'd be the guys having all these adventures, and then there was no logic at all. It was just, you know, run around and chase and fight and whatever, and cliffhanger, and run around and chase and fight, cliffhanger. 
That's not real writing. Real writing is about an idea. There's substance. There's like real science fiction is something like The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin, which questions the nature of human sexuality. Real science fiction is, um, uh, let's say, uh, uh, um, well, obviously, 2001, which has what happens if we meet a, a super intelligent alien race. Um, uh, Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert A. Heinlein, uh, which has us question the relationship between humans and artificial intelligence, an intelligence engine named Michael. And Spider Robinson writes great science fiction, too. Uh, ben Bova, Greg Baer, David Brin. Um, one of my favorites is uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, and you want to read his, his uh, book a couple year, from a couple years ago, 2312, which is its space opera with accurate science about how we might live in and colonize the whole solar system. And it's an astonishing piece of work. Uh, just, it's a universe that's like, wow, he, he went everywhere. And uh, I think, and to me, that's what science fiction does. It makes you question what's possible. Do you think that, uh, so you think too many people then um, get hung up on almost the fantastical elements? Yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example. I worked on a show called Land of the Lost, and in the first season, and I created it for Sid and Marty, and hired all the writers, and if you look at the, here's Norman Spinrad and Ben Bova and Larry Niven and Walter Koenig and Dorothy Fontana and Weena Sturgeon, and um, I know I'm leaving people out, and I apologize for that, but I brought in science fiction writers, and we had great stories. And there's a line of dialogue. Rick Marshall says, this is the land of the lost. There's a reason for everything that happens. We just have to find out what it is. And then the third season, when they had another producer, Rick Marshall says, well, this is the land of the lost. Anything can happen. And that tells you the difference between science fiction and guys who are just collecting a paycheck, okay? Is guys who are just there to collect a paycheck say, well, why doesn't somebody arrive with a flying saucer? And no, your universe doesn't have that. It's a strict, there's a strict set of boundaries and guidelines that you must adhere to because there's, there's an internally consistent logic that you must respect. But it's okay if that logic doesn't apply to the real world. Yeah. Right. right. It's, and this is true for fantasy. George R. R. Martin, one of the greatest writers of our generation, has an internal logic consistent with his world. There are things that he will do because they are consistent. And you will go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. Yep, but yeah, that's right. That would have to be there. And then there are things he will never do because they do not fit into his world. Do you I worry that he's going to call me one day and say, I've run out of characters to kill. Can I kill some of yours? But <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing, actually, an amazing series where George R. R. Martin just goes around. I actually may write that as a story. <laughs> where... <laughs> where, I, it, I, where I've got a story going and the hero gets killed in the middle and says, I'm sorry, George R. R. Martin came in and killed my hero. I mean, do that just so for the fun of it. <laughs> now, you, you, uh, you talked about, you named a lot of authors that are doing uh, good science fiction writing, both in television and literature. There's hope for the genre by the sounds of things. Oh, I, I think the genre is in great shape. Right. I think it's healthier than it has been. Uh, the problem for writers is getting paid. It has always been the problem in that when I started, there were uh, only 90 members of the Science Fiction Writers of America, maybe 70, I don't remember the exact number. 
And most of them were names you would immediately recognize. And um, so I, I met Annie McCaffrey at the uh, World Science Fiction Convention in 1968, and I said, Annie, um, I would like to join the SFWA. She says, well, you have to have sold a science fiction story to be eligible. And I said, well, does a, an episode of a television series count? And she said, well, what television series? I said, Star Trek. And she said, what episode? And I said, The Trouble with Tribbles. She said, well, give me five bucks and you're in. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, uh, uh, because she said, well, I'm membership secretary. I get to decide who's eligible. And now, of course, there's some very stricter guidelines. I'm not, I'm not sure I could get in, but um, I'm grandfathered in. But uh, uh, now there are something like 4,000 heading towards 5,000 members of the organization. I don't recognize anybody's names. I haven't kept up. I apologize for that. Um, I've, I've been too busy having a life. Um, and... Uh, uh, some people are just, you know, two, three, four short stories here and there. Some people, a novel and some short stories. And then there's people like, you know, John Scalzi and, and C.J. Cherry and Connie Willis and Mike Resnick, who uh, they must have a whole team of people locked up in the basement turning out stories in their style that they're putting their name on. Um, but uh, uh, there's, they're, they're doing, the advances aren't as big, but the sales are going up. We're selling more books than ever. It's just spread out over a much wider audience. So I can't really speak too much to the business of it because I only know my own business. But I listen to what everybody else complains about. <laughs> I don't take it too serious as long as I'm making my mortgage payment. Fair enough. Uh, do you feel that science fiction, and, and I suppose to, to uh, a similar extent fantasy has become more mainstream in recent years? Uh, actually, we are the mainstream. I mean, look at what's on the New York Times bestseller list, and this was since the 90s. The majority of books on the New York Times bestseller list are fantasy and science fiction books, whether they are labeled as such. Margaret Atwood writes science fiction. That's, oh, no, I don't write science fiction. Yeah, you do, ladies. Give it up. <laughs> Joyce Carol Oates. Oh, I don't write that science fiction stuff. Yeah, you do. Stop it. Um, Thomas Pynchon, you know, and a, a lot of these people, uh, I mean, and Thomas Pynchon wrote this brilliant little book, The Crying of Lot 49. He could have sold that to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, but no, he had to go and publish it as not science fiction and make, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars off it. So, um, yeah, we are the mainstream now. Uh, you look at what the what's earning the biggest bucks at the box office. Um, even movies that are not science fiction, like The Time Traveler's Wife, are science fiction. Um, uh, there are so many movies that have been sold as, you know, straightforward movies, like uh, uh, Charlie, which was based on Flowers for Algernon, The Martian Child, uh, which was based on some book by some guy. <laughs> um, and they're science fiction, but they're not sold as science fiction. And science fiction is no longer that thing over there. It's that stuff over here. So, um, and we still have, you go into the bookstore, and, and uh, if you can find one, and there's still a science fiction section. But so many of those books that are considered that you'll find in the new and popular section, you look at them and they could just as well have been shoved in the science fiction section. This goes back to the argument we used to have in the 70s that science fiction is a literary ghetto. And Kurt Vonnegut, recognizing that science fiction was a literary ghetto, said, I am not a science fiction writer, and then wrote some brilliant science fiction. <laughs> and so made hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, had five or six movies made from his books, even though 
he wasn't writing science fiction like Slaughterhouse-Five. And um, there are days when I would say, gee, if I had gotten out of the science fiction ghetto when I should have, uh, I could have been a gazillionaire. But on the other hand, so much of what I write, I really do like science fiction. I like what Heinlein established. I like what Sturgeon showed was possible. I like the sense of wonder of Arthur C. Clarke. And Arthur C. Clarke showed that you could write brilliant science fiction and the ghetto was invisible. He broke out of it. So I don't worry about it. I write the stories I want to write and if people read them, that's fine. If they don't read them, then they're wrong. And you're, and you're not ashamed of the of the science fiction nope. moniker? Nope. And, and why should you be? You talked about The Martian Child. Uh, it was made into a, a movie. Did you have any uh, input or? Um, oh yes, or I wrote a hundred thousand words of memos, which they all ignored. <laughs> Fair enough. There was a scene in in that kept showing up in version after version. I finally wrote a memo. I said, you know, if you put this scene, and it's a scene where the kid is at a convention, a little bit like this one, bigger, and he says, "I'm a Martian," and all the fans go, "Oh my gosh, a real Martian in our midst!" Oh my gosh, and make a whole big. Scene, and I said, "Excuse me, you guys have never been to a science fiction convention. That's not how fans would react. They'd say that's nice. I'm from <laughs> Venus. I'm from Talfamador. <laughs> you know, I said, and and it, the scene kept coming back. And I said, finally, I wrote a memo that said, "I want you to understand something. If you make this movie and put this scene in this movie, I will take out ads in Variety, in Reporter, in every magazine and newspaper I can afford." apologizing to my friends and fans and readers uh, and, and colleagues in the science fiction community for how you have portrayed them as idiots. Um, and I will make sure to distance myself from the film in the most embarrassing way possible because what you are doing here is insulting people who are most, many of whom have doctorates, they have college degrees, they work as physicists, they work at, at NASA, they work, etc. And if you're going to insult my friends and family, I will be apologizing for the rest of my life, but I will do it loudly. And they, apparently somebody took that memo seriously, and the scene in the movie was replaced with one where, which was much better scene, where the little boy uh, sees a mock-up of the rover on Mars and looks around and says, this is not my Mars. And you, he doesn't say those words, but you see the look on his face. And it's a very powerful, moving scene. It is the only scene they added to the movie that really... I felt really worked brilliantly for the, the what they did. The rest of what they did, I have. I mean, first of all, here's a guy who's a famous science fiction writer, and there's no books in his house. And say, Excuse me, have you ever been to a writer's house? And then they don't show him writing like a writer. He's talking to him, and, and he doesn't sound like a writer. The dialogue they gave him was not writer dialogue. Writers are grumpy, cantankerous, outspoken, obscure, esoteric, make references that nobody gets, but the writer appreciates his own jokes. <laughs> so, I mean, the best joke in the movie is, is, is true. I had a dog that I named somewhere. And this is a writer joke. Somewhere a dog barked. Well, you punctuate. Yeah, thank you. Somebody got it. <laughs> and that's in the, in the, in the original story. Well, they took a hammer to that joke and hammered it down. It's like, oh, give me a break. That's not how you do You just have the dog named somewhere, and you don't even explain it. People who get it will get it. People who don't get it, you know. And, and you know, the, uh, the joke that you do tell is when, when, when the little boy asks, 
Um, why is your dog named somewhere? He says, that way he can't get lost. He's always somewhere. <laughs> that's, see, that's a joke that the audience can enjoy. But if you have to hammer in somewhere, a dog barked, it, that, if you have to explain the joke, it's not funny. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any questions from the audience for David about anything we've talked about or haven't? Yes. David, I'm wondering, have you read Mark Cushman's These Are the Voyages books? Uh, not only have I read them, I wrote the introduction for the third one, which is due out momentarily. And your thoughts on those? Um, well, I think my blurb has been circulating that essentially I said, this is the most well-researched Mark Cushman's book on the original series, are the best researched books anyone has ever done about the creation of the original Star Trek, because he did what nobody else had been able to do or was willing to do or had the, the you know, the, the determination to do. He, everybody else, I'll talk to Shatner and Nimoy, you know, that's fine. Um, he went into the UCLA archives and read every single memo. And now he missed some of the details. Dorothy Fontana has, her copy has all these post-it notes attached that he has to fix for future printings, but... <laughs> <laughs> And he got a few, he missed a few things here and there, uh, and some of his suppositions were inaccurate. But for the most part, when he goes to the memos and says, look, here's this, what was said in this memo, and this shows that this person decided, and et cetera, um, they are, in, in my opinion, the most authoritative source you can go to. Other questions? Awkward uh, silence. You- you also worked on Babylon 5, mm-hmm. and uh, recently it's come out that Joe Straczynski is going to reboot Babylon 5. Yep. Uh, are you involved with that at all? I haven't heard from Joe, so at the moment it's probably no. But I'll run into Joe at some time, at some point when Joe is hiring writers again. If in, it, Joe writes all the scripts himself, and he's probably likely to keep doing that. But if Joe decides he's going to hire other writers, he's, he'll probably call me. And maybe Larry Dettilio, maybe a few others who worked on the series. I don't know. That's up to Joe. Would you like to be involved in a reboot of Babylon 5? If I'm not busy anywhere else, sure. I like the show. I like the people. Um, I think Joe did uh, a stunning job. Uh, My only issue with Babylon 5 is um, is that where the first season or two were so... Uh, so many interesting things were passing through the station that, that you wanted to find out what was happening next. But as he built the story arc, the, the show kind of shrank down to focusing on the story arc. And while the story arc was interesting, I missed that broader viewpoint. On the other hand, I mean, you contrast it with Deep Space Nine, which was, you never knew what was going to happen from one week to the next. So they didn't have a story arc per se. That actually uh, raises an interesting question. Uh, Do you enjoy writing for other people's intellectual property? If I like the show, yeah. If I had an opportunity to write a Sherlock Holmes script, I would leap on it with screams of joy. I've written two Sherlock Holmes stories. He's a wonderful character to to write. Um, Yesterday morning I read my Sherlock Holmes story, The Case of the Green Carnation. Sherlock Holmes meets Oscar Wilde. What fun I get to play with three great minds, Holmes, Watson, and Wilde. And um, so, and the conversation was 
that was great. I was, you know, I felt like a fly on the wall. And, you know, I was like, gee, what would Holmes say? What would Wilde say? Well, how will Watson react? Um, yeah, uh, but it depends on, I mean, there were a couple shows that approached me and, and I thought, I said, you know, I don't have any, I can't generate the enthusiasm for anything other than a paycheck and I'm not even have enthusiasm for that. Um, I did get to do a script for the last season of Sliders, and, and that turned out to be a lot of fun. When it comes to, to doing shows for other intellectual properties, it sounds like it's pretty key for you to at least uh, a little bit enjoy what they're doing. If I'm not enjoying it, the script is going to stink. You're not just interested in money. Not yeah. just. Yeah, not yeah. Just. <laughs> you hear what my accountant says about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, when you know, if you're interested in a series like like Holmes, uh, do, you know, do you do you actively go out and try and pitch stuff to like the BBC, or or do you just you know write your own stories and hope that one day an opportunity comes your way? Um, the BBC will only will, will focus on British writers and actors and directors, so okay. I doubt I'm going to pitch to the BBC or even the CBC, uh, Canadian. I don't know. Whatever. Things aren't going so well for them these days. <laughs> you never know. Well, I, I and, and don't take this personally. Don't take it wrong. But some writers in L.A. have a jaundiced view um, because for the longest time, producers were discovering they could bring their shows up to Canada to shoot them, Vancouver and Montreal, and whatever, which was great, except because of the Canadian subsidies, they had to use Canadian writers. So a lot of American writers who wanted to work on shows like Stargate or Sanctuary or whatever was coming up here were finding they were locked out of writing the shows that they could had real enthusiasm for. And so there's a kind of a, uh, I know a couple producers who will say, I'm not hiring any Canadian writers. I want to bring some jobs back to the writers I know here in the States. Um, I think that, Situation: the unintended consequence of all the Canadian production uh, of, bring, uh, of, of bringing American shows up to Vancouver and Montreal to shoot them, I think the unintended consequence was uh, it generated some ill will. And uh, uh, myself, uh, I've pitched a lot of stuff to a lot of different places, and I, we've gotten some, oh, this is very well written. We really love this, uh, but we're going in a different direction. So, okay. And, you know, it's like, all right, yeah, you can recognize that we did a good job, but you don't want to open your checkbook. That's fine. What's happening now is if you have a good enough property, you can crowdfund your your, your or bootstrap your way into production, and a lot of people are doing that. Do you think that's uh, good overall for... I think it's great. Okay. Because the studios, if you have to go beg for money to a studio or a cable network, you know, or, or whoever, you're the guy with the checkbook tends to have control over whether or not you can go to work. But if you crowdfund and you have enthusiastic fans, you get to do the show you've been dreaming of. Now, some people are very, very good at that. The guys doing Axonar, which is a, it takes place in the Star Trek universe, know exactly what they're doing there, and they're smart and they're professional, and they're doing professional quality work, and they're bringing in great people. The guys doing Star Trek New Voyages uh, are running on enthusiasm as much as professionalism, and they've done some stunning work. Uh, I can't comment too much on, it, on anybody else's work because I haven't seen enough of it, but at its best, the crowdfunded productions are, to me, the future of, um, the future of great science fiction. There's going to be a lot of 
crap, too, of people who want to do a show but don't have the skills to do it right or don't have the vision of, you know, they say, oh, gee, I want to do a show where I get to dress up in a costume and wave a lightsaber. <laughs> That's not science fiction. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, but I think that the, the cream will rise. To, well, cream isn't all that floats, but I think the yeah, thank you. Uh, the cream uh, will rise to the top, and I expect we're going to see some spectacular stuff in the next 10 years. I know Axanar is going to be well worth watching, and I know the next episode coming out of Star Trek New Voyages is going to be stunning. So Cool. Are there any other, other questions for David from the crowd? Going oh, once. I have beaten them into insensibility. Or more likely, you've answered all of their questions. All their questions. Very, God, very so. well. Uh, I'll go home now. <laughs> Convention's <laughs> over. Go home. <laughs> yeah, now that David's done. Yeah, yeah I'm done. <laughs> no, I have one more thing this afternoon. I think it's... I think. Or is this it? No. Well, it says on the back of your name tag. You can check oh, that. Yeah, uh, I want to see myself in the story Diversity in SF. That's a 415. There you go. There if you I go. live. Yeah, it's questionable whether or not you will. Yeah, I have done that for 50 <laughs> years, if I live. So uh, if there's no other questions from the audience, then I think that we should segue then into Adam's favorite part of our show. Oh, what's that, Scott? Is that the Fast 15? Why, yes, it is. Now, David, because you've only listened to The Unknown Studio once or twice, I'm sure, <laughs> you may not be totally familiar with The Fast 15. And for those of you who don't, I'll explain it. Uh, we take five minutes at the end of an interview to ask you 15 questions. 13 of those questions we ask of every single one of the guests we have on the show, and the last two are wildcard questions tailored to your interests. Or, okay, let's go for or, it. Or our interests about you. So here we go. The Fast 15, number one, your favorite food. Sushi. Your favorite color? Uh, blue. Mac, PC, or Linux? PC. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Um, Coca-Cola. That's a, that, <laughs> that is, is an acceptable That answer. is correct, yes. Uh, your favorite holiday? Oh, that's a tough one. Thanksgiving, because I get to eat a that, lot. Right on. Your favorite sport? Uh, volleyball. Cool. Favorite pastime? Um, second favorite pastime, writing. <laughs> and first, the jury's out. <laughs> no, first, it's none of your business. All right. <laughs> Fair what about your favorite show to binge watch on Netflix? Oh, my. Uh, it depends. Uh, well, probably be The West Wing. Okay. Oh, great choice. Your favorite movie? Oh, that's, well, there's about six of them uh, Wizard of Oz, Them, uh, Singing in the Rain, uh, The Searchers, um, the Godfather and the 1953 War of the Worlds and King Kong, the 1933 version. Nice. All right. Uh, your favorite video game? Um, StarCraft. StarCraft Two. All right. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Immortality. <laughs> <laughs> that is the correct choice, for the record. Uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. Obviously. <laughs> now we're on to our wild card questions. What about a favorite book that isn't yours? Um, gee, that's a tough one. Um, probably, I'll go with The Moon is a Harsh Mistress um, by Robert A. Heinlein. What about the one of the things you enjoy most? Or, no, actually Starship Troopers as well, oh, which is, one that is the single most misunderstood book in science fiction. Hmm. I'm the only one who knows it. 
And who knows how misunderstood it is. And and you can you can talk to David about that after our show. Yes. Um, what about one of the things you enjoy most about coming to festivals and cons like Pierce Beck? Um, I get to meet people who tell who say things that spark ideas, and I get to go home with my notebook full of new story ideas to write. So I, I get my horizon expanded. Cool. Right on. Ladies cool. and gentlemen, thank you for coming out and uh, seeing our interview with David Gerald. And thank, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 106. Our guest, David Gerald. Pre-production by Adam Rosenhart. Post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.